Welcome to Writer's Digest Presents. Hosted by the editors of Writer's Digest, this monthly podcast features conversations with writing and publishing experts whose insights will help ignite your creative vision, hone your skills, build your platform, and get your work out into the world. Welcome back to Writer's Digest Presents. In February of 2021, WD Managing Editor Mariah Richard began a Flash Fiction February challenge on the WD website. The challenge is back for a second year this year, so we're dedicating this episode of the podcast to Flash Fiction. You will hear interviews with Rand Walker about Flash Fiction and with Gina Barreca on Flash Nonfiction. And as a bonus, you'll hear the second half of Mariah and Michael's MFA conversation from episode one. But first, we'd like to chat a little bit about writing um, short stories and flash fiction. So, hello, everyone. Glad to see you all again. Hi. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so I want to start off by talking about the February writing challenge. And I can't, like, I was here when it started, when we started it. It's only been, it's only a year old. But for the life of me, I can't remember how it came about. Um, can anyone remember? Uh, I can start us off on this. Uh, Mariah and I would often meet like weekly to talk about stuff we were going to do online. And we would talk about, you know, just the content that we're going to put on there, the articles, blog posts, all that type of stuff. But we also would usually just kind of brainstorm at times, like just talk about, you know, things we care about in writing or things we'd like to see. And um, I know talking to Mariah uh she had this great interest in flash fiction and i started thinking like wouldn't it be cool to do like a daily flash fiction challenge because we actually do that in april and november for poetry where we do like a prompt a day a poem a day and like i would write a uh, example poem to whatever the prompt is for poetry and I, and i thought this might be fun for flash fiction but i don't want to like forced it on Mariah, but like Mariah, like heard the idea and was like, yeah, let's go do it. So, uh, Mariah, like, <laughs> I'll let you like kind of take the baton from there because that's kind of what you did. You like just took that idea and like ran with it. Yeah. It was one of those things where, um, since graduating from my MFA program in 2017, I'd kind of had like a very long writing dry streak. Um, so I like half wrote two different novels and I'd kind of let uh, writing flash fiction go to the wayside, um, which was unfortunate because that's really the only things that I've gotten published before are my flash pieces. So it felt like a sign from the writing gods that like, hey, not only are you going to um, encourage people to participate in this kind of writing, which you really enjoy, but it'll kind of force you to have a deadline <laughs> and to write these pieces with everyone. Um, so that's, that's really like what inspired me to really dive into the project. And the biggest thing from last year's challenge that I just did not expect was the joy of sharing um, what in my program we called our shitty first drafts, <laughs> which it was kind of like a no-no, right? Like. When you come to workshop, you don't want to have a first draft. You want to kind of have some polish to it. So I was very weird and insecure. And Robert will tell you, I would I would be like, I can't believe that I'm going to be 
posting these first drafts, I'm kind of nervous about what people are going to think. Um, and Robert was really kind. And, and ultimately, he said, you know, this is to show everyone else that it's okay to not have a perfect piece to share. It's just mm -hmm. about sharing the joy of writing. And that really happened on, on the comments of those posts. Everybody was replying to each other, saying, you know, the things that they liked best about the pieces and really just celebrating um, this month of getting together and writing together. It was really awesome. It sounds like it. So there were how many participants generally or um, approximately were there last year? Oh, I, I'm not sure, Mariah. Was it like it had to be over like 100 something yeah, uh, from the top of my head, I think that the most posts on um, one day's prompt was somewhere around like 130 stories were shared. Wow. Um, and then on like our lowest day, I think we had something like 72. Yeah, so... and those are the ones where people are actually posting. Because I know right. from the Poetry Challenge mm -hmm. that there is a lot of writers who will write poems and then let me know. Like, I, I remember last year being contacted by someone who'd been writing the poetry challenges for like over a decade and said that she finally had the bravery to like share poems this past year wow. on there, but that she had been writing alone, like along at home, but not posting it to the site. Uh, which is like another fun part of the challenge. Like, I think it's fun mm -hmm. to be able to share with people and, and get that feedback. But it's also like, if you want to do it privately at home, I'm an introvert. So like, I totally get that. Uh, it, it can often seem like at times like that I'm not, if you read stuff I post on the site all the time, uh, can make it seem like I'm a lot more talkative than I am. But uh, I'm just as scared as anyone else to share stuff. <laughs> uh, and uh so, so like, I totally get that, but, but yeah, like, I, I think for, for the comments, like, you know, it's probably like about a hundred, like, or so that we're commenting and then who knows how many writing silently along at home. And, wow. and it's like so much, yeah, that's like, incredible. I don't know for you, Mariah, like that's, that's like kind of one of the really uplifting parts of the challenge is just the whole community aspect of it. Yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, even one kind word can give you a boost you didn't know you needed. Um, and I know for me personally, I have taken some of the, the pieces that I wrote for last year's challenge and polished them up a little bit and have performed them at open mics. And I'm actually going to be doing a live critique through a writing group uh, locally in a couple of days, which is like a, another form of terror. Um, basically, <laughs> I'll be reading the flash piece live. Um, no one will have read it beforehand. And then immediately after, they will critique the piece. Um, so it was really just that I thought, you know, if all of these people are looking at my shitty first drafts, then and they're giving me nothing but kindness you know it's not gonna hurt me if if i do this live critique yeah. so it's it's really interesting to see the way that community can can really boost you not just your writing of course but just you personally and and the way that you view your own work 
So tr- I'm sort of in awe of both you and Robert for being able to post your um, your poems and your short stories on the website for everyone to read. Um, <laughs> Amy, maybe by this I time you not... and I will have done one. I can probably I can probably commit to one. Me too. <laughs> Uh, well, let's, uh, we'll try and make that happen, Michael. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, so I want to talk a little bit um, about, I, I interviewed Rand Walker for um, this episode of the podcast, and we got to talking about um, our experiences with reading flash fiction, um, which for me, I was telling him it's my experience reading short stories is very, very different than when I read um, longer book length works. So with books, I it's sort of like an addiction. I can't not be reading a book. So after I finish one, I immediately, I don't sit and think about the book that I just read or internalize it or have feelings about it to a point where I can't pick up the next book. I have to pick up the next book almost immediately, um, which is not great sometimes because then, you know, I lose the thing that I just read, or sometimes I will end up conflating two books that I've just read. But with short fiction, with short stories, I feel like it's a much different experience. After I finish one, there's that, like, that um, moment that really hits you. I feel like short stories um, end on a bang, almost. And I have to sit there and think about and process what I just read because it feels like so much has happened in such a short space in such so few words. And I find that incredible. Um, I wonder what if others if what your experience is like with reading short fiction or short works. I totally agree with you, Amy. And I think there's something about short stories and flash fiction where it's this weird experience of less is really more and short fiction just has the opportunity to be really experimental and Mm -hmm. unique. And it does, it follows its own rules a lot of the times in my opinion. And, um, when I'm feeling as a writer, particularly stuck or uninspired, I will probably pick up a short story collection or read a short story before I'd start reading a novel because though I read novels sort of in the same way that you do just sort of compulsively um, short fiction just does something to my brain that like immediately makes me want to be more creative. And um, Mm. I think it's just because there are less rules around it because you have less time in short fiction. So you get to do kind of whatever you want. I think I'm kind of the opposite where, um, I will read something and if it hits me in a certain way, I become obsessed. Mm. Um, so the, the outlet for that, especially if, um, like it's just a one-off book or, um, like the end of a series is fan fiction and fan fiction. Mm. Like when we talk about drabbles, those are stories that are just like 50 to a hundred words a lot of times. And it's really fascinating to see the way that people um, interpret different characters, but also um, like we like what Michael was just saying, um, how they explore different mediums. 
So one of my favorite flash pieces ever is a fan fiction that is based on a Reddit thread. So you're literally reading a story and it's just a Reddit thread with these characters. And it was so strange and fascinating that that's where one of the prompts from last year's uh, flash fiction challenge came from. I asked people to um, write somebody's Tinder bio and that was the story. Um, so I think that that there's something about short fiction that drives you outside your right. comfort zone and outside the box. Mm -hmm. And it really makes you look at things from a different perspective. Yeah. And, and I, I'm maybe a little bit closer to Mariah and how I read, uh, stories, whether they're long or short is like, you know, well, and, and maybe I'm totally different because like, you'll move on to the fan fiction, but like I, I read something and, uh, I'm not usually ready to like jump into the next thing. I'm usually like, like, all right, I've got this big world in my head. Now, what do I do with, with this world <laughs> and how do I process <laughs> this? And, and where do I, uh, go with it? Do I, do I write something? Do I read something? Do you know, where, like, like a lot of times, like I'm not even sure. Uh, and I like to kind of sit with it. Um, even if it's for like the night or, or, or whatever. Um, so, so sometimes like when I read a short story collection, like I'll think, okay, this short story collection's like 250 pages long. It's got like 12 stories in it. This novel's like 500 pages long. I can knock out that 500 page novel in about the same time that I can knock out about three stories from the short story collection, because it's like, I, I have to like kind of sit and process each story as I go wow. through them. <laughs> so. So even though they're shorter, I'm, uh, I've got this, like, I, it's almost like I give the same amount of emotional weight to each of them, even though one's much longer and probably like more involved with all the characters and the plot and everything. It's like that short story is also like its own little world anyways. Mm -hmm. So, so, so it's, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting. And it's something I really didn't think about till, uh, you asked the question. It's like, oh yeah. Like it is a little bit, it's a, it's a little bit different. Like in, in some ways it's kind of the same how I read them, but it's also a little bit different because you would think that the word count would be similar and, and that doesn't really matter. It's like the mm -hmm. world itself that's similar for me. So. Yeah. I think the word count is part of what interests me about that. And I think why I do pause like take a pause after the short stories whereas i don't with the novel because with the novel um you know i've had seventy thousand words um and i'm sort of I, occasionally i will feel sad about leaving that world and be ready to move on um or or want to st stay in there um, as opposed to moving on yeah but with the short fiction because it's so few words i am I'm so, um, it's like I have a, I'm impressed by the novelists who can write that many words about a story and make it coherent and, um, hold their and my attention for that amount of time. But I have another kind of respect for the short story writers who can do so much or the, like the equivalent of a novel in such a short amount of space, yeah. that deliberateness with 
the words that right. they use, I think is um, it really impressive. So are there any short stories or works of flash fiction or nonfiction that um, will like, always live in your head that you will never be able to forget? I, I can start off. Um, I started thinking about the concept of flash fiction and I just, this isn't the greatest example of flash fiction, but I always think this is like one of the most brilliant, funny, like shortest and longest story ever written. Uh, it's, uh, by John Barth from his, uh, lost in the fun house story collection. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that, but, uh, he has this story that just, um, I'll, I'll put it in front of the screen for people who can't, who are just listening basically on one side of the page, it has this once upon a time there. And it's got this dotted line where you're supposed to cut that out of the, that strip out of the book. And the other side of that strip says, was a story that began. And what you do after you cut that strip out is that you tape the two sides together. So it kind of makes like an eternity symbol where it just says, once upon a time, there was a story that began. Once upon a time, there was a story that began and so on and so forth. <laughs> and it's not deep. But oh, I just give think me it's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's uh, you know it's as as short as uh what? Ten ten words long and as long as like infinity. infinity. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, that's so cool. I have I hadn't heard of that. Yeah, yeah, it, it's uh yeah, the book is called Lost in the Fun House and um it's a great collection of short fictions uh, it's a little bit older uh but definitely uh, worth a read and beyond that like <laughs> any short fiction by laurie moore andrea uh barrett mm -hmm. like i i love i love their short fiction uh speaking of like short stories that feel like incredible well-formed worlds um uh andrea like laurie moore like can make me laugh with like I'll just be reading so concerned about whatever's going on. And then she'll hit me with like a one-liner that makes me laugh out loud. And, uh, and I'm like, how did that just happen? <laughs> and then, uh, uh, Andrea Barrett, uh, I'll read hers and, and it might be like a 30 page story, but I feel like I've just gone through like the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy <laughs> because it's so, so, uh, dense and, and, and wonderful. So. I think mine is probably pretty standard. Um, it's generally attributed to Hemingway, although there's like no proof, but it's just for sale, baby shoes never worn. And the thing that I think is so incredibly powerful about that one sentence story is that it is packed with emotion, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have any visual element to it. Um, and as a writer, I, I very much conflate emotion to setting, right? So mm -hmm. like description and like even characters describing how they're feeling is often how I can slip myself into that story and feel those feelings. Um, but in that one sentence story, it doesn't need that. 
it just mm -hmm. serves up that emotion to you right right there totally honest and i love that yeah i always love that that one that, that example and it always feels kind of like a haiku um, yeah yep. in a way mm -hmm. i love lauren groff's short writing i think she is just such a beautiful writer um but when i think of short stories and it, this might be because of the experience i had with the author i think of ben laurie a lot and he writes really um i think this is a good word weird fiction mm -hmm. and he writes like I, I would say like adult fairy tales like he takes mm -hmm. concepts of how we used to write stories and then just makes them really unusual and really short really short and he has this collection called stories for nighttime and some for the day and there's a story in it called the shadow and it's literally like two sentences and it's just once there was a man who was afraid of his shadow then he met it now he glows in the dark and it's just like that over and over again like the collection is just a little bit folklore a little bit fantastical but um uh really emotional too there's just something really sweet about his writing and when he came to um my the university i went to and did a reading and i was really nervous to meet him and i uh we got our book signed and when it was my turn he asked me what my name was and i am also an introvert and like don't know how to especially post-covid like have no idea how to interact with people and <laughs> Um, I just handed him my copy and I was like, oh, my name is Michael, spelled the normal way. And um, so he signed it to Michael, spelled the normal way. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you're really funny and sweet. Uh, that's perfect. But also I just want to throw out Lydia Davis is some of the, the best flash fiction I've ever read. She wrote a story about finding her dog's hair around her house after... Mm -hmm it passed and it's like, I think a paragraph long mm -hmm. and it's just so emotional and beautiful. I don't think I would be able to read that. Yeah, story. It was a bad idea. <laughs> like I shouldn't have done it, <laughs> but I'm glad yeah. I did it. Yeah. Um, I think so for me, the, some of the stories that live, um, the short stories that live like rent free in yeah. my head are the typical ones that, you know, you, read for the first time in high school, like the lottery or yes. Hills, like white elephants or four white elephants or whatever the Hemingway story one was. Um, but I think those are, um, those sort of shaped what I like in short stories now and what some of my favorite short stories are. I like the really creepy, disturbing, unsettling short stories. Um, <clears throat> I, there's one, um, in Rand Walker's collection, Portable Black Magic, about the paint color paint blue and about um, spirits using that paint color to enter and exit the house. And it is incredible and disturbing, and I love it so much. <laughs> um, and then in his new collection of stories, I think it was um, Keep It 100, he has a 100 word story that is what happens next in the lottery oh wow and it is yeah like because we just see the character being stoned to death and but what happens after that what do they do with her body and what does her family do and he 
addresses that in 100 words. And it is, again, just as disturbing <laughs> and incredible as the Shirley Jackson story. One of the interesting things that, that I start thinking about is that maybe the power of flash fiction and short stories in general is just that you've got the story, the world, but then you've got all this white space mm -hmm. surrounding it where you're not developing everything. Like mm -hmm. There's a lot right. unsaid that, that maybe it's, uh, speaking of collaboration earlier, maybe there's a lot more collaboration <laughs> with the reader, uh, creating what's happening outside in that white space. Can I ask everyone a question? That's a, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourselves being drawn to a different, to your point, Robert, I, I think when I'm reading, when I'm reading a novel, I'm really interested in the way like setting is described. And when I'm reading short fiction, I think what I'm interested in is how people behave. And I'm just curious if you all could think about it. Like, do you read differently or are you drawn to things differently when you read short fiction versus novels? Yeah, I, I think for me, um, short fiction has to make decisions about what where it's going to focus. So, right. um, so I think I, I probably do read differently just because the writer has to write differently because they have to, like, like in a book length story, you can develop everything. Whereas in a shorter fiction, you really have to make conscious choices. Like I'm right. going to focus on this or, and this, but like everything else I'm just going to have to ignore. Right. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. That's true. And I think for me, when it, when it comes to, um, shorter fiction, uh, thinking more from like the writing aspect of it, I find it so much easier to play with point of view um, than with longer work. So when it comes to uh, my longer fiction, I tend to write third person limited. Um, but when it comes to Flash, especially, I find this like very unique, unusual voice that comes out of me um, that tends to be more like playful and comedic. Um, and I tend to write a lot of second person. Um, mm. which I think can work very well in a very like contained short. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm like a fan of really dark fiction. Um, I don't normally love <clears throat> comedy, uh, but I think that when, when it is so small, it can really open up a lot of avenues. Yeah. Um, you can look at a subject in a funnier way than you might if you know you have to spend so much time with the reader getting them to like the characters um and at least for me as a character driven reader it's more quote unquote acceptable <laughs> for me to <laughs> not like a character in a short piece hmm. than it is in a long piece because i don't want to spend that much time with not them. liking someone <laughs> Well, this has been really fun. I want to keep talking to you all about short stories, but um, I think we need to move on to our um, guest interviews. So stay tuned for more. It's out there for people to, <laughs> to fill in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Now we're going to discuss splash nonfiction with Gina Barreca. Gina Barreca is the author or editor of more than 20 books, including Fast Funny Women, a collection of 75 flash nonfiction essays. She was deemed a feminist humor maven by Ms. Magazine and has appeared on CNN, PBS, the BBC, 2020, 48 Hours, The Today Show, NPR, and Oprah as an expert on women, humor, and cultural politics. Learn more about Gina at www. GinaBareka.com. Welcome to the Writer's Digest Presents, Gina. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. And for this episode, we're talking about flash fiction, but I thought it would be really exciting and interesting to talk about flash nonfiction, a topic that you wrote about for us on uh, the WritersDigest.com site earlier this year. It was uh, the perfect place um, for what I had to say about flash nonfiction, and it was the great uh, timing because I did a book last year, and another one is coming out in March. And then, if you know all goes well and the waters don't rise, another one will come out in 2023. Um, we have hopes for the future uh, from Woodhull Press, and the book that uh, I, I was writing about, particularly for the Writer's Digest piece, which I was so delighted. I've actually heard from a lot of writers uh, who uh, found that piece somehow in classes that used it, um, uh, and writers um, who were using it uh, in when they were teaching their middle school classes. Uh, you know, and then and other people who were in the profession. Um, so we got a lot of reach and that, that made me very happy. But when um, I just this last year was putting together Fast Funny Women and it's uh, 75 essays by women uh, on topics that range from hideous, horrible emotional trauma that they turned into humor and really stupid, funny slapstick moments that you could have turned into trauma, but actually just made themselves funny right from the beginning. And that's what sort of flash fiction and nonfiction do. It, they're very small pieces of real estate. When I, I uh, teach writing at the University of Connecticut, I've been a professor there since 1987, um, when people were actually writing on pieces of paper. And I still <laughs> encourage my students to write on pieces of paper for their first drafts. I really do think that writing on pieces of paper, um, whether it's on the back of a CVS receipt, since you could now write all of, you know, War and Peace on the back <laughs> yeah. of a CVS receipt, you don't need a, like a little fancy notebook. You can write anywhere. That's the nice thing about writing. Um, and the, uh, the idea of writing uh, very short pieces, 750 words, um, or less is what I used as uh, the defining point for the, the essays for the books, um, is that you have to see it like a tiny studio apartment. Um, I grew, I'm a New Yorker, which anybody who's even listened to as much as I've said can tell, <laughs> even though I've been in Connecticut since 1987. I still sound like I'm from Ocean Avenue in Brooklyn, which is where I'm from. And so real estate, you know, you had a 500 square foot studio apartment on the Lower East Side, like I did when I was in graduate school, you learn how to use your real estate very carefully. You had loft beds and the kitchen was the writing room, which is where you entertained. And, you know, your friend sat in the bathtub and you slept in the sink. And you, I mean, you know, you made use of whatever you had, but you have to do it in a small space. And any kind of flash writing form is basically making the kind of use of real estate in terms of form that you had to do in a small 
apartment. It was not the place for a Rococo uh, decoration and an exploration of um, how someone was going to remain solitary in a place. No, 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 no. It's like, get to the point. We're going to have dinner. Everybody sits down. You get one plate on your lap and that's how you're going to use it. Um, and, and that's what you do when you're writing. It's like you have to get to the point. It, it is not a place for a lot of description. It's not a place um, for uh, backstories to uh, sort of enliven the elements. It is not a place for plot uh, unless the plot is the moment that you're discussing. Uh, at that time, as I said in the Writer's Digest piece, um, that, you know, all of good fiction and nonfiction holds a mirror up to life, but in flash fiction and nonfiction, you hold a compact mirror up to life. Mm -hmm. You are just looking, it's, it's, a, it's a miniature version, which doesn't mean, it's like a film short. Um, it, it doesn't mean that you can't explore the world through that very small frame but it has to be put into perspective and proportion so that you use that particular frame correctly or not even correctly, but to the best use of that space. Um, and again, you could take the best passages from long pieces. You could go back to Dostoevsky and you could remember that one little moment when everything came together. And if you cut out those 750 words, you might make that work. And then it could still go into a longer book. So um, there are lots of pieces in Fast, Funny Women. Um, I, I was delighted that uh, the pieces are uh, I commissioned from writers who were uh, surprisingly delighted to supply them. So Jane Smiley, who happened to win the Pulitzer Prize, <laughs> like put in, you know, I said, Jane, I know her from Facebook and from her work, um, but I've never met her. And I said, would you write something? She was like, yeah, absolutely. Mimi Pond, who was the New York Times bestselling graphic novelist, did the cover for Fast Funny Woman and wrote a beautiful piece about fabric. So we've got this short text about textiles um, and about growing up and her grandmother looking at the description of wedding dresses um, and how the bride was wearing uh, French lace over our, you know, a, a, a kind of raw silk that came through. But it's, it's Mimi's world through that particular fabric description. So um, it's, it's getting that focus and what the great thing about an exercise, uh, the 750 word exercise, is that it forces you to pay attention to the details. And writers, too often, we get lost in the, the clatter and din and noise of everything we want to put in. And 750 words forces us to take it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that uh, way of describing it because, you know, there's a lot of nonfiction and and i do this where like i love to like dive deep and, and go into it but with flash nonfiction, it's more you you get to that to that moment um i guess uh one thing i'm interested in uh you, you mentioned the fast funny women is um was there like a variety of styles among those 75 essays i know the topics were a little bit different but like even like the style that, that, that people wrote? Uh, yes, there were many different styles. I gave writers were able to use uh, whatever sort of uh, genre 
to present themselves. They were, Marge Piercy um, created a piece for us. I mean, Marge Piercy has been a hero of mine since, you know, high school. And, um, and her essay is sort of almost in the form of a prose poem. And, and it's about sort of what to do during a natural disaster. It's sort of what they were doing during a snowstorm and a blackout. But it, especially since the book came out during the pandemic, um, that to treat this with, um, with light, you know, during the blackout, with the lightness that humor forces you to bring uh, to the page, um, I think was a sort of tonic for everybody. So um, Dawn Lundy Martin, who is an amazing uh, poet, uh, who is one of the people who is uh, head of, or she is, she now is a chair at the University of Pittsburgh in Africana American Studies. Um, she had been a student when I was first teaching at the University of Connecticut. So to have watched Dawn become one of the great poets of our age and to herself have a named chair at a major university was like amazing. And so when, you know, I asked Dawn to contribute, it was, um, you know, it was great that she said yes right away. And her piece, uh, as actually it was one of the few pieces that had been published elsewhere, was first published in McSweeney's and is hilarious. And Dawn is known as this very serious poet. And the piece that she wrote is one of the funniest ones that's in there. And then, um, and there again, all of them, because it's fast, funny women, but that doesn't mean that some of the pieces in the book won't break your heart. Uh, mm -hmm. Because as we know, um, humor deals with the best of humor, um, deals with what's taboo, with what's unspoken. And I say, as I say in the introduction to the book, um, because humor and gender is sort of what I've worked with like for the last 30 years. That's how I started mm -hmm. writing and, and what I've sort of stayed with. Um, that humor is about really redemption. Um, you, humor allows you to redeem moments that are otherwise lost to frustration, to misery, to tragedy, to, um, to longing, to loneliness. And, uh, but humor allows you to get your deposit back on those mm -hmm. moments. <laughs> Um, because if you ask anybody when I do writer's workshops and one of the short exercises, I'll, I'll ask people to go around and say, I mean, without, they, they have to write it down, but it's two sentences. It's like, what is the story that you dine out on? What's the story that you tell? Mm -hmm. And is it, if it isn't the worst thing that ever happened to you, what is? Mm -hmm. And most of the people will say that the story they dine out on has something to do with the worst thing that ever happened to them. Because oh, the wow. stories yeah. that we tell are ways to mitigate, to transform, as I said, to redeem the terrible things. Because once, as we know, once we tell a story, we make it ours. It's not something that happened to us. It's our story. We're mm -hmm. the maker of it. We create it. We recreate it. It's, it's recreation. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's how humor comes in. It allows us that recreation. And it is... It's, it was great to see these different, again, the stories come in. One, um, a, a woman who's a, a professor at Dartmouth, Carolyn Deaver, uh, writes an essay that's um, sort of taking a 17th century writer that she'd been working on for her scholarship and sort of making almost a Harlequin silhouette romance piece out of it. It's the one that stretches nonfiction most, but since it comes out of her scholarship, it sort of breaks the frame a little bit, but it's mm -hmm. wonderful. And, and that, I mean, and it was, so there are stand-up comics in it. Um, there are, again, writers that we've grown up knowing, Judge Judy, Judy Scheinland, mm -hmm. 
is in the book because she was my next door neighbor in Brooklyn. <laughs> Judy's dad was my dentist, and uh, so I have no shame. And Judy is, um, uh, you know, one of those people who, if you write her, um, she answers within five minutes. Which actually, mm. so did most of uh, the writers who have been uh, were most well known in the book. Faye Weldon, who wrote *Life and Loves of She Devil*, who was wrote the pilot for *Upstairs Downstairs*. Which some of us who are old enough to remember that that was the first BBC masterpiece theater that ever appeared mm -hmm. on American television. Faye wrote the uh, the pilot, created the characters for for that show that so transformed television, and um, they write back immediately and they say yes. And emerging writers have a much harder time. I have a lot of I, I the book is full of emerging writers. There are people who were in their 70s who'd never been published before. They've been writing their whole lives. And there are people who are 20, who this is their first time, but it's not the last time we're going to hear from them. I hope it's not time, the last time we're going to hear from the 70-year-olds either. Mm -hmm. But the emerging writers have a much harder time saying yes mm -hmm. because they're nervous about hitting send because mm -hmm. hitting send seems so much the moment of the irrevocable. And yeah. you have to, one of the pieces of advice I give to every writer and, and to people like I'm standing next to on the checkout line, you don't have to be a writer, but <laughs> it's like you have to take those moments of the irrevocable seriously. You have to hit send. The worst mm -hmm. thing that will happen is that somebody will say, this isn't right for us or go back and edit. Yeah, That's yeah. it. I mean, they're really, they're not going to come with pitchforks and, and torches to your door. I mean, yeah. really, they're really not. Um, I, I, I really, pro I'll write you a note promising you that. They'll come for other reasons, depending on what you do, but they're not going to come because you didn't get your piece right. Um, it, you know, most places, if you have an idea, you have your own voice, and you have something to say, really do want to hear from you. You just have to figure out how to get those three things together and then hit send. Once you learn how to hit send, life gets so much easier. Mm -hmm. No, no doubt. I, I totally agree with that Good. and <laughs> and endorse that uh, fully. Um, I know that you, you mentioned that you have two more uh, flash nonfiction books coming out. Are those going to be um, humor as well or, or are they are they anthologies? Or are they different? Um, um, they're, uh, they're, that's a, a great question. Um, the next one that's coming out that's finished um, yeah. is called fast, fierce women. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of the essays I realized from the sort of first round, and there were a couple of the same authors, but most of the authors are different. Um, and I, again, I'm sort of casting in that so that some of the authors that I know, and they're sort of anchor authors, and Maureen Corrigan, who is the book reviewer for NPR, you'll hear mm -hmm. her on Terry Gross. She's a wonderful writer herself, did a great book on Gatsby, a sort of cultural icon. She's brilliant, she's funny. And she wrote, um, she also, I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn, she grew up in Queens. And we came out of families where like the last thing they thought we were gonna be are people who dealt with books and <laughs> being an out of borough girl and sort of growing up into this world and what that meant like and having like faces that you didn't like and not looking like you were supposed to. So it's funny, but again, it, you know, it, it sort of cuts your throat while she does it. Mm -hmm. And there's one uh, by Amy Hartle Sherman, who's a, a, a hilarious writer, who's a blogger. And she writes about when she was um, a flight attendant um, on, 
an airline I won't mention, but it's in the mm-hmm. book. Um, but how some guy kept screaming that he wanted to get off the plane because it was delayed and he was doing that, getting increasingly drunk for four hours. And this was 20 years ago. This is mm-hmm. before people could record such things. And that she went and told the pilots with whom she was friends. And they actually sent like one of those staircases to the plane. Mm-hmm. And she said, leave. Mm-hmm. We're making you leave. And he was like, I, well, you can't make me leave. And she said, no, you were asking for four hours to leave. You're going to leave mm-hmm. now. And the applause and the delight of the rest <laughs> of the pastor. I mean, it's a wonderful thing, but it's about her saying to this guy, it's finally like, Mr., you want to leave? You're going. And it's sort of the triumph of um, somebody's uh, backbone, their passion, Phyllis Levin, who's an amazing poet, uh, is in it. And she writes about the ritual she used as a child to sort of organize her life out of emotional chaos. Um, uh, Carolyn Levitt, who's a best-selling author, um, writes, she begins the book, um, she's writing about, uh, again, being turned down at a writing gig because she could tell that the editor really was there to sort of snub her and wasn't going to hire her in the first place. It's a great story about the writing life. So, and the book after that, that I'm soliciting essays for now, um, for that I'll, I'll close out this spring, actually is called Fast Fallen Women, because I decided that, you know, the fall of man, um, it's always pretty generic. Right? It's the fall of man. You got, mm-hmm. you got your Miltons, you got your Bibles, you got, mm-hmm. but fallen women are all individual and there are mm-hmm. lots of ways to fall. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. Margaret Atwood talking about, it's only when you're, you know, you're pushed off the cliff that you learn whether you're going to fall or whether you're going to fly. Mm-hmm. And I'll take any advice from Margaret Atwood. And, um, mm-hmm. and so, uh, so people are talking about fallen in very different ways, not only the fallen women, like in some kind of Victorian um, sexual way, but being pushed off the pedestal. Mm-hmm. And um, and and I talk about the fact that, uh, you know, I grew up falling, uh, you know, falling down, falling in love and falling apart, but that you decide how you're going to rise. And then other people are talking about, you know, the, the fallen, like troops are fallen, but what about the girls who didn't fall themselves but were pushed? What about the the girls who were taken by the troops and locked up? And so there are serious issues. Again, humor, if it helps to tell the story, is great. Humor, if it's there for its own sake, as Dorothy Parker said, is just wisecracks. So it's up to the writer to make those 750 words that like that space in that one bedroom or studio apartment, every single bit of space has to count. Yeah, and and I like I like that all three of them are are different yeah. that way because it helps show the diversity that uh, is available to writers if they want to go down the path of flash nonfiction and and I think you know people should check out all three anthologies. Uh, one of them's out right now. One's going to be out soon, and then the other one will be out next year. Right, and uh, again, and, and I'm I'm looking for for fallen women. So yeah. if anybody's up there falling, they could get in touch. Would, would, would they do that through your website? Yes, they can. Or, and my, you know, through uh, ginabreca.com, as, as you mentioned, and my email is up there. And again, I'm active on Facebook. If they come onto my public Facebook page, I often write about writing, put up prompts. I'm, um, I put up the articles that I write for Psychology Today. I'm up to about... Uh, 7.5 million viewer views on that. And a lot of those pieces are about writing. And I love to write about writing because it's what I do. And it's not, 
it's it's pretty down home advice. Um, and it's also my, you know, my everyday dealing with what this is like. And it's about not quitting your day job. And it's about figuring out how to get to the hitting send and about how to find your audience and find your voice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Gina. This has been great to talk about flash nonfiction. And anyone who wants to learn more, we've already mentioned a few times, uh, go to ginabarica.com. Thank you, Robert. I am here with Ran Walker to talk about his flash fiction and microfiction. Ran is the author of 24 books. He is the winner of the Indie Author Project's 2019 Indie Author of the Year Award, the 2019 Black Caucus of the ALA Fiction Book Ebook Award, the 2018 Virginia Author Project Award for Adult Fiction, and the 2021 Blind Corner Afrofuturism Microfiction Award. He teaches creative writing at Hampton University and Writer's Digest University and lives with his wife and daughter in Virginia. Visit his website, ranwalker.com, for more info. Ran, welcome to Writer's Digest Presents. I'm so glad you can join us. Well, thank you for having me, Amy. So this ep episode is all about flash fiction, and I think you take it to the extreme by focusing a lot on 100-word stories, which I, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think are called drabbles, and 50-word stories, which are called dribbles. That's uh, correct. I wondered, how did you get into flash fiction and what appeals to you so much about writing such short stories? Well, when I first started writing, I started with novels because that's what everybody told me I should be doing. And I wrote several of them, but I just kept feeling like I was saying a lot more than I really wanted to say. So I started shrinking and I went from novels to novellas. Wrote a couple of those and felt I was still being a little bit too verbose <laughs> with what I was trying to express. Mm -hmm. And then I went to short stories and felt the same and eventually got to flash fiction. But I didn't really find my sweet spot until I hit the 150 uh, to 100 word area. And I kind of came across that by accident. Mm -hmm. I was studying a poetic form called the Kwan Saba, which is a 49 word poem. It's seven lines, seven words per line and no word of more than seven letters. And I was writing those and feeling like that something could be done with that in a narrative way mm -hmm. and you know add one more word on there you have a dribble and that's literally yeah. how it happened i started with the poems and then tried to make the poems more like the stories that i wanted to write that's that's really interesting because that's actually um your collection of kwansabas was actually the first of your writing that i read so that was my oh, introduction wow. to you the the very um, specific form of the seven lines and seven words and seven letters. And I was, as I was reading it, I was thinking how, um, how much, I don't want to say um, dedication, but intention must be behind each of those words in order to um, make a coherent thought, but also fulfill those very specific um, guidelines. And I think that's, um, I was actually wondering if, because you started in that way, um, working on those Kwansabas and adding the one word to make it closer to a dribble or make it an actual dribble, um, do you see the connection between poetry and 
short story um, in terms of the word choice for your short stories, like in being that intentional with them? Definitely, definitely. When I first started writing dribbles, I quickly realized that it's very different writing a story versus writing a poem. But, you know, there's that gray area, too. There is the prose poem, and then there is a narrative prose poem. Mm -hmm. So there are things that could look almost identical, and you just have right. to blow on it and it becomes one thing or the other. But when you're writing something that's short, every single word counts. And I have to ask myself, do I really want to say it this way? Or maybe I can get back one of those words by using a contraction. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly shaping it and trying to find the best words to fit that specific word count. Right. Sometimes I get it right and other times I might miss it a little bit, but it's always, like you said, intentional and mm -hmm. in trying to find those words. <clears throat> I feel like that sort of intentionality would also, um, I don't know, <laughs> add more to your vocabulary. Um, I feel like I would spend a lot of time in a thesaurus trying to make sure that I chose the exact right word to um, create the most meaning that a reader could infer for that particular um, story or poem. You know, it's funny you said that because I use that as an exercise a lot of times with some of my stories. Okay. I'll look for the strangest word that I've come across that week mm -hmm. and see if I can build a story around it. And actually a couple of them in uh, Keep It 100, where mm. the words might seem really strange, it's because I came across them and felt that they could actually, uh, a story could be made around the words. And the collection I'm working on right now, I actually pit two definitions against each other mm -hmm. because they're so close. Like one is about the fear of failure. The other one is about rooting for one's failure. Oh, that's and so interesting. So I use, uh, you know how to give the examples of the words being used in the sentence. Mm -hmm. I put the definitions and then the examples using the same characters. And through the examples, you actually get a full story. Okay. I can't wait to read that. <laughs> <laughs> so your newest novel, um, A Burst of Grey, I will hold it up here, is actually 100 stories told in 100 words each. And I think the premise of this story is so creative. It was, I was instantly hooked in that only people who find their true soulmate can ultimately see in color. How did you come up with that idea? Actually, I was online and I was just looking at prompts, things to write about. And I saw a prompt that kind of boiled down to that very thing. Really? And I was like, well, what would that look like though? Like the idea was maybe expressed in seven or eight words. I was like, this is a writing prompt. What can I do with this prompt? And then I started thinking about the cultures that would evolve out of this. And I thought about a character who would depend on this science in a way that most people wouldn't. So that was the original idea. And when I tried to write it, it didn't work. I wrote it longhand and a moleskin and everything. Did not work. I abandoned the idea. Then I came back later on after I wrote Keep It 100. And I said, what if I wrote this as 100 different stories that all told the same narrative arc? Like a novel, 
with 100 different Wanjoor stories. And I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. But then I wrote the first two or three and just kind of started falling out in clumps. I was like, I think I can do this thing. And I got to 50 and I was like, oh man, I'm into this. So I've got to find out where it goes. But yeah, that's how it started. I think that's so interesting that it came from um, a writing prompt. I think that's fantastic. And I think um, finding a soulmate is challenging, is a challenging enough task in life already. Um, and the idea of attaching that to being able to see color really amps up the stakes. Um, you know, like, do you, and you present this in the book, do you keep searching for your soulmate in the hopes of being able to, um, you know, not only meet them, but finally see color? Or do you partner with somebody who you love, but I guess isn't your soulmate? And knowing that you might run into them, a soulmate someday, um, and have to make that choice. So I think that's a lot to cover in 10,000 words. Um, and you managed to do it. Was your first draft much longer than, than the end one, uh, 10,000 words, or have you written short stories enough now that you are able to write shorter naturally? That's a very good question. Normally I would overshoot things and then edit back, mm -hmm. but with the novel, you can actually kind of plan what should happen in each of the chapters. And I was able to actually just measure it out mentally and okay. then just write into it. So I never had to overwrite, but that probably comes from having written so many 100 word stories. I think up to this point, um, of the microfiction collections I've put together, there are over 500 different stories that I've written. So I've gotten really comfortable with expressing ideas in short spaces. Wow, that's a lot of short stories. <laughs> that's really impressive. <laughs> What's your experience in reading short stories? Well, the thing I like about short stories is that you can be really resonant in a short amount of space. When I think of some of the, uh, the classic, most anthologized short stories like uh, Faulkner's Rose for Emily, The Lottery, Shirley Jackson, um, Baxter's Procrustes by Charles Chestnut. There's something about the ending that just, where you walk away from the story going, whoa. Mm -hmm. And it kind of stays with you. And I love that space that, that you get to feel the echoes of the story after the fact. So um, I definitely agree with you on that. And mm -hmm. I'm definitely a lot more drawn to shorter works. Uh, while I like short stories, I'm always impressed to see what people can do with even fewer words. Because mm -hmm. I think sometimes we don't really measure our words when we write. As writers, we don't really measure our words. I tell my students, think about each word like it's a dollar. Oh, yeah. Do you want to spend $1,000 or would you rather spend 100 And what exactly are you giving me for 100 Can you give me something that has the same value, if not more value, than something that costs 1000 or 10000 so um, I'm always looking for writers who are able to express themselves in that, in that way. And I've found quite a few. When I find mm -hmm. them, oh, it's, I go and buy everything they write. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are a few that I'm, um, like, I'm from Mississippi originally. Okay. And there is a poet uh, who also is a memoirist. Her name is Beth Ann Finley. And she has a collection called Heating and Cooling. It's a nonfiction collection. 
And a lot of those pieces were published originally as poems, but they read as straight nonfiction as well. And I just love what she does with space, the economy of words that she uses. And there, there are a number of people who are really, really strong. The Eric Grant Faulkner, another mm -hmm. person who is very strong in that area. And I just, when I read those stories, I get so much from them. So what are, you mentioned a couple of your favorite writers of um, microfiction. What are some of your favorite outlets to submit to? Well, Grant um, Faulkner is one of the co-founders of 100 Word Story, which I believe was one of the first periodicals to really do that. Mm -hmm. um, that's always a great place to submit. There is a new journal called The Sense of Fictionist. I love that title, too, because it says exactly what it is. And I believe that the editor is in her fourth uh, issue. It's a okay. wonderful, uh, wonderful journal. Uh, I know that Smoke Long Quarterly has been known to publish mm -hmm. uh, short pieces. Um, there's just a, a variety of different places that you can go to. Duotrope has a list of them. And um, What's funny, though, is that there are places, and this is just a small little gripe, but there are places that claim to publish flash fiction that won't even look at microfiction. Really? And, you know, it has to be 300 words. It must mm -hmm. be 500 words. And I'm like, 500 words, that's five stories for me. <laughs> Unless it's an interlinking yeah. story, then I can't really submit to them. So mm -hmm. I find that, um, you know, sometimes it's best for me once I've gotten enough of the individual pieces done to just handle it myself because I do have a background in both law and publishing. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe the work deserves to be in, in the universe and in the, the dialogue for microfiction. So if it's not there and people are hesitant about putting it there, I'll put it there myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you do. Um, how, how many self-published, how many books have you self-published at this point? I believe that it's like 20... Two of the 24, okay. the others were published by other publishers. But, you know, clearly I love self-publishing. Um, and I've gotten to the point where I feel that, and this is no diss to anybody, but I've been doing this so long and with my background, I feel like sometimes, and this, like I said, it's not a diss, but yeah. when I look at what <laughs> other people are doing and what I'm doing, I feel that my work is comparable Mm -hmm. in many respects to what is already on the shelves. Uh, and my books are on the shelves in different places as well. So I don't feel like it, yeah. there's anything lost by that. No, and certainly your, um, the bio that I read of you at the, um, at the top reflects that, I think, with all of the awards that you've won, deservedly so. Um, and I want to go back to what you said about some um, outlets not being open to microfiction and it i thinking about it i think writers digest might also be one of them um, we do the your story submission um where we have a, a photo prompt in each right. issue and we ask writers to submit um in most cases i think one of them is a 600 word or fewer story mm -hmm. but when we get uh stories that are 450 words or 500 we always say oh they're too short it's not going to fill the page and maybe maybe i need to think about that a little bit differently and think about 
the story itself fills the page, even if the word count does not. Does writing the strange, as you called it in your um, article for Writer's Digest about this, um, does that resonate more for you when you write short stories than writing fiction based in reality? You know, I never really thought about it. When I teach my classes and the stories I assign, I've had students say, are all of the stories weird like this? And it so happens that most of them are. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up really enjoying like the Twilight Zone, amazing stories, Tales from the Crypt. And I think when you can get those stories done the right way, then it's there's nothing better than that. Mm-hmm. So. I used to have this saying that out of every 10 episodes of a particular show like that, only two of them are going to be good. The other eight are not going to be as good, but those two are going to be so good that you're going to keep coming back for more. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I do find those fun to write. And when I first started writing, honestly, I thought that that was what I was going to do. I was going to write horror. I was going to be, Victor LaValle is doing a very good job with that right now. Um, but I was thinking that's what I'm going to do. And now that I see that there are people out there able to do it successfully and that there is an audience for people of color doing that type of thing, I've gotten even more jazzed about it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Jordan Peele's over here. Yeah. Donald Glover's over here. Victor Laval is writing. It's not a do is writing. Everybody's having this conversation and we're in these strange places and I'm loving it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love reading it. It's, they're some of my favorite stories. Um, those sort of strange ones that give you goosebumps. I saw you t- um, posted something on Twitter the other day, uh, maybe it was yesterday, about writing um, a story that scared you. <laughs> was that how you put it? You know, okay. So <laughs> <laughs> Can I share the story with you? I, I would love that. because I I've, haven't shared it with anyone. Okay. And it's actually based off of something that's real. Okay. That makes it even you, more scary, yeah, I think. Yes, very unsettling. This one's called Black Water. She had nightmares of black water trickling from the hotel faucet, shooting out from the shower head, swirling around the commode, and even dripping from her toothbrush. It was always black water. And the water had always come from above, a tank on a higher floor, or perhaps the roof, containing the body of a woman thought to have disappeared. In her dreams, the water would pool at her feet before rising slowly up her calves to her thighs and hips, forming a black liquid curtain around her body. Then it would pull her until she slid down the drain. Yeah, that's unsettling, but I love it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, that's so, so it, creepy. It's like one of those things that, yeah, I feel a little uncomfortable. Yeah. I have to detach myself from the words as I'm reading them. But, yeah. And it, there was actually a situation. I'm sure you've heard about it. Uh, I, I do a lot of true crime. And uh, that story always just made me feel really, really uncomfortable. Yeah. But the way you describe it, it's such a visceral thing. Like you can almost feel it. And I don't want to go take a bath or take a shower <laughs> for a little while because it's 
what might come out. <laughs> um, so you are, for well, for a couple of years now, you have been a judge for the Writer's Digest short, short story competition. Um, after reading so many submissions, which I think are in the hundreds at this point, maybe thousands, um, what advice do you have for people who are entering short story competitions? I would first make sure that I'm following every single instruction uh, for the competition. Um, if there, well, there's really like a, a template for writing short stories, and that's available everywhere on the internet. Um, but as far as the writing itself, figure out where the story is supposed to start. Sometimes we start where we see it starting, but that's not really where it should start. Every story has something happening before the action and after the action. What's the most important place to start the story? And most people are not really familiar with their stories enough. They think of them as like as a TV show or a film, and you have to kind of like create this. With a mm -hmm. short, short story, you don't have the luxury of exposition, building up to the rising action and so forth. You have to kind of start in medias rest right there in the heart of things. And once you figure out where to start, figure out what that first sentence is going to be. Because like you said, if, if I'm reading a thousand stories, you've got to hook me very quickly. Mm -hmm. And uh, and one more tip, because you know I have a whole boatload of tips, but um, the other thing is make grammar and punctuation your friend or your friends. Mm -hmm. um, I believe Stephen King refers to it as the toolbox in on writing. Get very familiar with that. And if you're a person who don't know, you don't know what a comma splice is, or how to use a semicolon, or um, that you should indent each paragraph that you write with, that you're not submitting something that's formatted for a book, but for national competition, then, you know, those are things you can do ahead of time that would better your mm -hmm. chances of, of getting farther in the process. So. You know, another thing too, and this is something that's really amazing because I think last year I, I reviewed a thousand stories. This year is a little under a thousand. Mm -hmm. And when a good story comes along, it stands out, mm -hmm. it pops. And I'm sitting there like, oh my goodness. And I wanna email, really wanna email you and say, this story is yeah. so good. The best <laughs> I can do is just push it to the next round. But those, some people really have an excellent grasp of story. And when I read it in my, in my bones, I feel like this is something that could easily be published somewhere and even anthologized at times. Wow. Um, so far, and I'm kind of far into the grading this year mm -hmm. of stories, but I found some excellent stories. In fact, I plan on rereading the stories again um, because some of them are that good. Wow, so that's I'm, great. I'm very excited about it. But those you know, people who really have a firm grasp also set the bar really high. Right. It's like a curve. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is what an A-plus looks like. And then everything else kind of falls into right. its own category. So, um, you know, but the things I said earlier, those help you to get past a lot of the initial um, dismissals. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I have one last question for you. I wonder, do you have any new books in the works? Um, I've finished your newest, A Burst of Grey, and now I want something else. <laughs> well, I just finished 
a collection called A Library of Afro Curiosities, or The Library of Afro Curiosities. Okay. It's another collection of 100 word stories. There are 100 of them. Uh, Black Water is one of the stories there. Perfect. And they're all over the place. Uh, some of them are extremely meta. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I love playing with the form in different ways. I have one that's just a list of song lyrics. Uh, let me tell you what I mean. So, okay. one of my favorite Beatles songs is um, Come Together. Yeah, okay. And those lyrics are ridiculous. And I was looking at uh, John Lennon's like, yeah, this is just gobbledygook. <laughs> yeah, and people are like, you know, we like to make sense of their stuff. You know, mm-hmm. Paul is dead, the walrus, this means this, each verse is devoted to a member. And we do all of this hyper analysis, like Jordan Peele level analysis <laughs> on these songs. And then the songwriter's like, oh, this is just gobbledygook. And I was like, that's perfect. Maybe I should just include the lyrics of a fictional song that people have debated for years since everyone seems to get the lyrics wrong anyway and just see what kind of story falls out of that. So there are a lot of really fun things in that collection, but it's called the Library of Afro Curiosities. And also I just finished a Christmas book. Oh, really? The title came courtesy of Grant Faulkner. It's called okay. A Different Kind of Christmas Story. And it's about uh, an African-American community in Mississippi during 1983. Okay. And it's just the kid wants an, a Mr. T action figure for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And his sister wants a Cabbage Patch doll. And it's just a bunch of fun stories about the community. There's nothing in there that is dreadful or, you know, okay. the conflict is very light. Mm-hmm. It's a story of black joy, and I've always wanted to have a Christmas story, and I've written one, and it will be coming out next year. Thank you so much for chatting with me and joining us on the Writer's Digest Presents podcast. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Same here. Thank you so much, Andy. Hello and welcome everybody to part two of our MFA workshop conversation. I am editor Michael Woodson here with managing editor Mariah Richards. If you missed part one of our conversation, go back to our January episode. And here we are going to hopefully be answering any and all of your questions that remain. I don't know about how you felt at the end of your um, bachelor's degree, but I was like done. <laughs> um, okay. I was so burnt out by the end of my um getting my bachelor's mostly because I was also working mm-hmm. and um I I just I was feeling really I I'm curious I really want to talk about um workshop because part of that was I loved to write and I liked learning how to give constructive feedback which mm-hmm. I think is a big part of workshop when done well but I was just like drained emotionally from sitting down and hearing people not give me really helpful advice and just say mean things about what I'd written. And there was one time in particular, and this was a year where it was just a bad writing year for me. I didn't have a lot of good ideas. Um, I learned a lot in in how to write poorly, to be honest, but I, I wrote a story that I was actually quite proud of and it, it got <laughs> just like 
it was just did not go well. My workshop did not go well. <laughs> and w one of the students who was very, I don't know, just honest, I guess he would say he was, said something just really mean. And, and my professor like stopped the workshop and said, we are not cruel in this classroom. And he was helpful, but it also made me feel too seen. I was like, okay, yeah. Okay. So that was mean. I'm, that's not me just reading into it. Right. Um, cause then, so, cause sometimes workshop is amazing. And I think it is dependent on the structure and also the, the professor leading it. Um, I, I'm just curious about your experience with an MFA in workshop. Yeah. And this is something that, um, if you're considering an MFA program, I think it's really important to um, ask questions during yeah. the application process about workshop structure. Okay. Because um, so the traditional workshop structure in an MFA program, and this is going back to like the 70s, right? Hmm. It is that um, before the class, you will submit a um, like before you come together, you will submit your writing. Mm -hmm. So it's usually about a week that people will have your piece. Um, many programs will also limit the amount of pages right. that you can submit at any time. So you can still write a novel and workshop your novel um, or a stage play or, you know, but it, it's a certain number of pages that you can mm -hmm. have at any one time. And that's just to prevent, you know, everyone submitting 80 pages. Right. <laughs> um, because it's usually two or three people right. are going on the same day. So you'll have about a week with the work. Um, People will generally, um, and this is this is the kind of weird academic part of it, because the professors have to ensure that you are participating. Mm -hmm. So they will generally request that you print off two copies of the story, one to hand back to the author with your notes on it, and one to hand into the professor. Um, so you don't get graded on what you're saying, just so that they can check in and make sure that yeah. you are um, being an active participant right. in the workshop. So then it's workshop day, mm -hmm. right? So you come and you you're, know you're going to get workshop and you sit down and everyone else will discuss your piece in front of you and you are generally not allowed to speak. You're not. Yeah, it's exactly. You're not like it's a rule. Like you're not yeah. allowed to speak until it's over. So our program gave us um, and so I had three different uh, professors in workshop. I had four workshop classes, but one professor I took twice. Um, okay. and, but they, they each had this rule that at the end of the, you know, when the conversation came to a close, um, you were, as the author, you were allowed to speak for five minutes and some, like my problem with this structure is that number one, um, it is very difficult for a lot of people, myself included to sit there and feel like everyone is tearing you apart. Um, it's almost like people are talking about you in another room and they don't realize that you're hearing them. Ouch. Yes. That is, that is how it felt to me. Um, and part of that, I think, was my age. Um, you know, I was a very green writer. A lot of these people had been honing their craft for much longer than I. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, it felt like there was a huge gap in the quality of our work. So I was only a lot of times hearing the negative. Sure, of course. And the positive things were getting buried because 
you know, when they're sitting there and they're like, well, I didn't understand this. I, I don't get this. Why does it have to be this way? Right. And then one person is like, this was actually really great. I loved the character. I loved the dialogue. You don't hear what they liked. You hear about how much it sucked, right? Well, and tell me <laughs> if this was true for you too. Like for me, it was structured like you start with what's working and then you finish with what isn't working. And so like the last thing I was left with always was a, a list of things that made it a bad story. So that is not how my oh. workshops were structured. It was just an open conversation. Okay. Um, I even had one professor who never spoke. Oh. So he was present to make sure that things didn't get like totally out of hand. But it was just a conversation about like whatever people wanted to talk about. Okay. Um, and to me, that was the hardest one because, you know, I and I think it's the natural way that we converse as mm -hmm. um i want to say american society right mm -hmm. like if you have three people in a group of five who are all bashing something your natural instinct is not to be like well actually it's to kind of go with the flow mm -hmm. right especially if you have three powerful dominating voices um so you know, if you're writing on your paper 10 things that you liked and two things you didn't like in the conversation because it is tending in a negative direction, you might just say the two things you didn't right. like. Right. Um, but if that's all you're hearing when you're sitting in workshop, it can be very discouraging. Yes, of course. Um, so it all depends on your personality, your experience, um, and like even, even just the like another thing I experienced in workshop is that some of my classmates had a hard time hearing the criticism. Sure. Of course. So they would spend their whole five minutes kind of being defensive about mm -hmm. the work. Um, and I think that's a natural tendency, of right? Course. When you feel like you're being attacked, you want to, you want to stand up for yourself. Yeah. Um, but in doing that, they lose all the good things that we like, you know what I mean? Of course. So, um, nowadays, workshops across the United States are changing up their workshop form. Mm. Now, um, I experienced this not in a, an actual workshop, but in one of my craft courses, one of our professors was like, hey, I'm going to try a structure of workshop, which is called the asking. Oh. So it, it was structured at the beginning, the same way, right? You receive somebody's work. You have a week to read it. You come to class with your notes prepared. But the only person who is allowed to speak and direct the conversation is the author. Oh, wow. So generally, you would come with a list of questions. What did you think about the characters? What did you think about the setting? What did you think about the ending? Like, And you are only allowed to speak to those questions. That makes sense to me because when I think about the, when I think about the times where I felt, I don't want to say critique was wasted, but things that like ultimately were not what I was hoping to work on or like things that like, I just didn't agree with. Like there are some things where I, was just, I would get feedback about like, wow, that person was right. I really want to work on that. Whereas other times I'm like, you know what, actually I stand by what I chose to do and I'm not going to, I'm not going to mess with that. And I'm always interested and willing to hear how any of my writing can be better i mean we're editors like we are we're constantly getting notes on each other's work right <laughs> and, and i love that because it's constructive and it's helpful but if i could so if i could lead the conversation and be like i don't love this aspect of the story or at least in my head i can i can know like i'm gonna ask a question about this because i 
I want, I think it needs some work and I don't know how to work on it yet. And I think for me, the most powerful part of the asking workshop structure was that um, a lot of times in a workshop, I will have been thinking about something like, oh, you know, I really don't think that um, this character's motivation is very clear. Mm -hmm. But those were not things that were discussed during workshop. Right. And then if I ask those in my last five minutes, people who hadn't had a chance, like, if you don't have a chance to think about it, how right. can you respond? Right. Absolutely. So... With the asking, since I had a full 20 minutes or whatever it was um, to lead the conversation, I would be able to say, were the character's motivations clear? Do you feel like you understood where they were coming from? Give people a little bit to sit there to review the, the work, mm -hmm. to think about it, and then come up with a response that was helpful to me. Oh, I love that. So when you're looking into MFA programs, you know, it's you're allowed to ask questions of yeah. the directors. You can usually their emails are right on the program page. You can reach out. Hey, how do you guys structure your workshops? Mm. Are you doing any um, new or experimental structures? You know, having the power to ask those questions is not something that I realized that I had when I was yeah. applying. <laughs> you, yeah. So it's it's important to to know the different structures out there because I think for me personally. Um, the traditional structure is not helpful. Um, I think with my, my anxiety problems, I just focus on, oh, everybody thinks I'm sure. terrible. Yes. I must be terrible. And I don't hear the things that will allow me to improve the things that need improved totally. and highlight the things that I'm actually doing very well. And that's a better, and, and we should keep going, but that's a much better critique to me because like, even just now, I'm in a writer's group casually and throughout NaNoWriMo, I had said something. I had expressed a concern about something in my writing to my friends. And I said, you know, I don't think I'm very good at this. And then they were like, okay, tell me what you think you're good at then. Right. And I was like, well, I think I'm pretty good at setting and I think I'm really pretty good at atmosphere and mood and blah, blah, blah. And they were like, if you just lean into those things, this other thing that you're concerned about will probably solve itself and they were just really helpful in helping me notice what i actually think i'm okay at and um it ultimately just made my writing better yeah and i think that is something that um an mfa is a pressure cooker yeah oh yeah i will say that so the writer that i was when i left my undergraduate degree like if you put my work side by side from my thesis to you know through i guess it was just two years prior because i went to a two-year program you would not have thought that was the same, same person. person i mean honestly Completely though like hope, different that's hope that's kind of the goal though right like just yes. like to continue to get better at the thing you are probably already good at and that was the thing like i I wasn't able to see that until years after yeah. my program when I was like, man, you know, going through this box of material from my undergrad, mm -hmm. like the the themes are still there. Mm -hmm. You know, I've always been particularly strong with my dialogue, mm -hmm. but the rest of it has gotten like worlds better. Mm. Um, and I, I do credit that to. Um, being able to take more craft courses. Nice. That is something that, um, you know, we do focus a lot on the workshop. I think that is a strength for getting your MFA is having um, dedicated time to have yeah. your material reviewed. But just being able to study things that you 
might not have um, absolutely even known that you had an interest in. right like flash fiction i never really thought about it until my program and now here i am at writer's digest leading the yes. flash fiction february challenge yeah. like <laughs> yeah it's it allows you to explore completely different totally. avenues um and something that i don't know if you are aware of is that depending on what kind of program you are in um, sometimes they'll even let you study across genres oh yes so if you are going um, and you are studying say fiction for some programs you will be able to take craft poetry classes okay. or craft nonfiction classes um, but not every program allows you to do that so I wrote a lot of cross-genre material before I got my MFA. My program did not allow you to study cross-genres. I was only allowed to take craft classes from the fiction track, Okay. Um, which I didn't know before I applied there. Right. Um, and so I write a lot less of creative nonfiction and poetry than I did before I went into my program mm -hmm. because I feel like... You know, I jumped 10 levels writing fiction yeah. and I kind of grew maybe three levels doing the poetry and creative yeah. nonfiction on my own. Totally. So it is it is something to definitely keep in mind. Yeah. If you're looking at um, because they don't always advertise that on their websites. Right. Yeah. They say we have these three different programs, but they don't say <laughs> anything else. Right. Right. It's interesting to hear you say that you were on the younger side of people in their MFA program because mainly a lot of my friends did immediately go into an MFA and they also were like wishing they had taken just maybe a year between just to like take a rest before jumping back in. Um, and that made me curious about like, I could not have afforded to go to an MFA right away. I just knew I needed to get a job and it was stressing me out to like need a job I've, I've kind of like uh, ruminated on the idea of getting my MFA program as an adult now working. And I just am curious, like, what does that look like for people who are working full time? Is it something that you feel is uh, worthwhile or well, is it is it something that you feel is doable? It is definitely doable. Um, I do want to say, knowing myself, if I hadn't gotten my MFA, um, I'm a now or never kind yeah. of academic person, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I did my bachelor's right out of high school. I did my MFA right out of my bachelor's. And mm -hmm. there was something in the back of my mind that said, if you don't do it now, you're never going to do will. it. Yeah. And that is definitely true for me. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if you are that kind of person and you're considering your program, like, don't let Wait. it become something in your rearview mirror. Sure. If it's yeah. something you really, really know that you want to do, sure. right? For a lot of people, um, both my parents got their master's degrees when I was in college. Okay. You know, it's something that they never even really thought about wanting until they didn't have to worry about me anymore. Yeah, And they're sure. like, hey, with all this time to ourselves, like, we would love to further our education. Go back to school, yeah. Um, and the MFA is a really great program for that, um, the okay. style of the program. So there are several different um, forms, I guess you can say. Okay. There's the full residency, which is what I did. Mm -hmm. That is the traditional college experience, right? All of your classes are in person. Um, I do want to do a little caveat here because of COVID. 
Mm. Um, a lot of classes are doing either totally virtual or partial virtual. Um, so I do want to say like full residencies have had to adapt a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, some programs are back full in person, but if that is something that is a concern to you, mm-hmm. um, those are definitely questions to ask uh, because, you know, just because in 2022 they're going to be doing virtual classes doesn't mean they're going to continue that into sure. 2023. Um, but traditionally, um, most full residency programs will have an option for you to be full time or part time. So I was a full-time student. Mm -hmm. I want to be here for every class. I want to have all of my classes right in a row, and I want to graduate in two years. Um, In my program, the people who were part-time took one or two less classes a semester, and um, they graduated a semester or two later. So um, they were still a full residency, right? They were there in Philadelphia. They were coming to class, um, but they were also more flexible in their schedule. Um, So on the other end of the spectrum, you have a low residency. So this kind of program does not require you to be um, like in a classroom, except for sometimes it's anywhere between like seven to 10 days a year. They will okay. bring all of their students to the campus for like a, a week-long workshop experience. Okay. Um, and that's really just a way to help you to get to know the people that you're studying with, get to know your professors. Um, and it's it's more like a conference from what okay. I understand. Um, but generally, you know, it's, it's more like a virtual program. Okay. You have your lessons online. Um, you are generally working a full-time job mm-hmm. and doing your classwork in your off hours. Okay. Um, it's a lot more of a flexible college experience. Um, and when it came to, like I asked myself, can you do a low residency program part-time? And I'll be honest with you, I have no idea. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> that is something that I think that, um, I, I looked on many websites, yeah. you know, for these campuses and, and these programs, and I couldn't find a strict answer. That's okay. just something that if you're interested in, you would have to ask each individual program. Okay. Because um, I know full residency, most programs do offer a part-time. Dual. Okay. Um, but then there is also the dual degree program. Uh, most of these programs are full residency programs. Yeah. But the way that they work is that they allow you to get two degrees from the university simultaneously. Oh, wow. So um, a program that I actually was accepted to and I really considered going to um, would have allowed me to get my MFA in fiction alongside my master's in editing. Oh, wow. Um, So it it was the same amount of years, but it was just more classes. Um, I ended up not going there partially because I didn't know if editing was where I was going to (laughs) go and uh, partially because um, it was a smaller, newer program Mm -hmm. and I was attracted to like the more recognizable name. Sure. Um, And for anyone who like, it's not a secret. It's on my LinkedIn. Like I went to Temple University. Oh yeah. um, Which is known for its MFA programs. So I was like, 
that's the <laughs> no yeah. i don't need any more questions that's the one yeah. um, which might have been a mistake in the long run because mm. i didn't ask any questions sure um but the the cool thing about dual degrees is it's not just things in the publishing and editing field um like the program that i was considering it's you could also get your mba mm. You know, you, any kind of master's program that the school allows you to partner with your MFA, you can study those together. Okay. Um, and if you're anything like me, you might be thinking, like, that sounds like hell. Why would you take so many classes at the same time? Um, it just seems very overwhelming to me. Yeah. But if you do these dual degree programs, if you know for a fact I'm going to get my MFA and I'm definitely going to get my MBA, Mm-hmm. Packaging them together this way saves you a lot of money, okay, and a lot of time, yeah. Because you don't have to do a two-year program and then another two-year program. Yeah, well, that makes you, sense to me. Yeah. So it it all depends on what your specific goals are, um, and that's I didn't know. I didn't right. know what my goals were. I didn't know to ask these questions. Well, of course. <laughs> Don't you ever think like the older I get, the more I realize how young I was when I was asked to make like huge decisions that I probably wasn't ready to make yet, which yeah. is probably why I'm ruminating on it now because I'm like, well, maybe I'm ready to make it. Well, and it's also for the time that I was at in my life, um, mm-hmm. I was engaged mm. and I was not willing to move states and states away from my partner so he was getting his degree in pittsburgh and so i only applied to schools within a reasonable mega bus distance yeah of course to pittsburgh yeah um and so when i was getting all of these rejections from my programs my next i was like okay well if i don't get in anywhere i'll just go live in pittsburgh yeah um, unfortunately I did get into a few places, but, um, it, it's one of those things, you know, if you cast a wider net, then you'll have more options. Mm. Um, but at this stage in my life, you know, I'm, I'm not willing to move. Yeah. You know, I'm not willing to quit my job. Right. Um, because I, I love my job. Yeah. I love it here. So something like a low residency program would be perfect for me. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Um, but at the time, I was like, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to do it so that I can travel on. Um, I, I was even like, this just tells you the kind of human being I am, right? <laughs> so I stacked my classes so that for every single semester I was there, I only had classes Monday through Thursday. So that I, or usually it was Tuesday through Thursday, I would shuffle them right so then i could get on the mega bus friday morning be in pittsburgh and not have to come back until monday yeah (laughs) like i i did make it work and at the time i was working um i was working freelance so i was Mm -hmm. working remotely i could work from anywhere yeah but i was like i can do this program in a way that i can make my life fit into it but I was willing to uproot my life and do certain things yeah. to get the program where you, you don't have to do it that way. Sure, of course. You can make the program fit your life and not the other way around. This has been so helpful and interesting. And I have to imagine listeners who are going through the same experience of deciding whether or not they want to do this. I hope this has been helpful. But if there's, an, if there's a listener out there who hasn't even started questioning it, like how do you know 
how does someone ask or know like if an MFA program is right for them? So my my short answer is that um, no one but you sure can know. Um, my little bit longer answer is um, why do you want to go? Mm. Uh, for me, it was because I wanted to become a better writer. And I wanted to extend my time to have to make decisions about my career. Yeah. Um, and I, I met those goals. You know, mm. by the time I left my program, I knew I wanted to be an editor. Um, and I was able to do a lot of writing in those two right. years. Um, but if you're going because you think that it's going to land you a job. So say you want to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you get your MFA, it is not a guarantee that you will be hired to be a right. professor. You know, it's it's tough out there in mm-hmm. the job market. Um, even if you get your MFA, there is no guarantee that you will get published. Um, it's it's not that kind of stepping stone, right. um, which I think sometimes it is sold as mm-hmm. like all your dreams will come true right. once you have this diploma, and it's it's not true. <laughs> um, so if you're going because you're going for yourself and your craft, um, I would say definitely explore what options are out there. Um, if you're going because you think that it's gonna get you someplace um, different from where you're at, Mm -hmm. I would highly recommend um, doing more research and spending more time with it. Because it is, it's expensive to go to a program, but it's also extremely expensive to apply to -hmm. programs. Um, So just knowing what's best for you financially, emotionally, in your writing career, getting all of those ducks in a row you'll have your answer at the end of that whether or not now is the time for you to go and if you should go well thank you so much Mariah. this was so helpful and fun thank you michael it's been great for this episode's writing prompt challenge yourself to write a 50 or 100 word story about a character who cannot or will not leave their home Thanks for listening to Writer's Digest Presents. Join us next month when we'll be talking with debut authors about their first publishing experiences. Until then, you can find book recommendations from the WD staff at bookshop.org shop slash Writer's Digest and visit writersdigest.com for more writing prompts, advice, and inspiration. You can email us at writers.digest at aimmedia.com to share your feedback. We look forward to hearing from you. Bye.